0: hey folks and welcome back to the theopolis podcast i'm your host brian moats and i'm the content manager at theopolis institute we at theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church participants in our programs learn to read the bible imaginatively worship god faithfully and engage the culture intelligently in this episode we are continuing our series of biblical worldview and here james jordan is moving into a new direction in a section that he calls the enoch factor i'll let him explain what the enoch factor is But we think this new series of lectures will be really useful to you in how to think about culture and the arts and making sense of how to engage and think about our world. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And as always, we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing the Enoch
1: Factor. How's that for a clever title? The Enoch Factor, and by the Enoch Factor, I don't mean the Enoch that went up into heaven without dying. I mean, Enoch, the city that Cain built when he went out from the presence of the Lord. Why don't we look at Genesis chapter 4 and get these things before our minds, and then we can reflect upon them. In Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 16, we see that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Wandering, east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushahel begat uh, became the father of Lamech, and Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. And Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she gave birth to Tubalcane, Vulcan, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubalcane was Naamah. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged 70-fold, then Lamech 77-fold. Now, the Enoch factor is what I am calling the fact that it's the pagans who got there first and built the first city and built the first civilization. It's the pagans who learned, first of all, and were preeminently good at livestock. It was the pagans who, first of all, learned and were preeminently good at music. It's the pagans who learned first and were preeminently good at uh, metalworking, and it almost seems as if they were preeminently good at killing people as well. Now, this is a problem for us as Christians because we come along after. We're the descendants of the second Adam, and we come second in history. And as descendants of Jesus Christ of the second Adam, we come into a world in which a civilization has already been built that has the name Enoch written across the top of it. And that civilization already has all kinds of expertise. And how do we as Christians respond to that civilization? Well, I think that it will help us to drop back and look a little bit by way of summary, and I keep summarizing, but each summary moves us forward one large step, and to summarize some of the information that we've seen already in Genesis 2 and 3. And tonight, I want to talk preeminently about man's kingly task and its perversion. Man's kingly task and its perversion. We've seen that man had a priestly task to guard the garden and to relate properly to God as a result. And when man rebelled in that area, his kingly work collapsed. The cities that he built, the children that he gave birth to, the societies that he formed, all were perverted. But man's sin didn't lie first and foremost in the area of his failure to carry out the cultural mandate. His sin lay first and foremost in his failure to relate properly to God. Sinful men continue to carry out the cultural mandate to some extent, but they do so perversely. They continue to do the kingly task, but they don't do the priestly task of guarding God's word, or they don't do that in any way at all properly. Now what I want to talk about tonight to set it out is kingship by means of the word, that is what proceeds from a person, and kingship by means of knowing and doing and fellowshipping. And so first of all, let's look briefly, well, not too briefly, at kingship by means of the word. Now what is the word of God? The word of God is what comes from God. He is the only begotten one of God. And the word of God has three characteristics. It is powerful, meaningful and self-expressive god's word is powerful meaningful and self-expressive we speak of the word of god as controlling things by its power by the word of the god were the god were the heavens made and by the word of god all things hang together his word controls all things by its power and god acts by his word and his acts reveal his character Because when the natural man or any man looks at the works of God, he sees the character of God. God's word reveals himself. It comes from him and talks about him. And one form, the first form of that word, is that God acts powerfully by his word. And the things that God does in his acting, in his powerful controlling, that shows his character. Second of all, God's word is meaningful. That is, God speaks by His word and says things. And what God says, the meaning, the content, the ideas, the philosophy that comes from God's mouth, God's word, and we think of the Bible here as God's word, that reveals His character. And so if you want to learn about God, you look at the Bible, and that's where God's word appears in written form, as meaning for us. It's meaningful. It's powerful. God's Word controls all things, and we see His character everywhere we look as we see His power displayed. God's Word is meaningful in that it has content to address the mind that's spoken. And third, God's Word is self-expressive. That is, God is present in the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was the Word. The Word controls all things. God manifests himself as controller in the Word. God speaks in his Word. And God the Son is the Word. There's a personal aspect. So God is present in his Word. Whenever God speaks, God is present. And there is power that comes with that. These things always go together. Now, when God makes himself present to us in the world, it's always the second person. John 1.18 says, No man has ever seen God... It is the only begotten Son who has revealed him. All through the Old Testament, when people saw God, they weren't seeing the Holy Spirit. They weren't seeing God the Father. What they saw was God the Son, always. Now, you might think, for instance, of Genesis 18. A lot of people are confused about Genesis 18 because they don't always read it carefully. But let's look at Genesis 18, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord appeared to Abraham by the terebinths of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Who were those three men? I've heard even theologians say, well, they're the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But they're not. One of them is God the Son. The other two are angels. Now, if you don't believe me, we can look over here at the fact that the Lord is speaking to Abraham throughout. And then in verse 22, it says, Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. So two of the men went down to Sodom. And you'll remember those two men arrived at Sodom, and they were angels, and they struck the people of Sodom blind, and they got Lot and his family out of the city. So only one of the three was the Lord. No question about it, this is not Trinitarian here. It's the Lord and two angels, not a manifestation of the Trinity. Don't be confused by um, the ideas that you hear sometimes. Whenever God is seen and made present, it's always God the Word. It's not God the Father, not God the Holy Spirit, God the Word. We say that God's Word is powerful, meaningful, and self-expressive. Let's say that all together. Powerful, meaningful, and self-expressive. I didn't hear you. Powerful, meaningful, and self-expressive. Right. Now, that is how God reveals himself. And we can also say when we talk about God's revelation as in his presence or self-expression, when he reveals himself, it's always God the Word. And secondly, God reveals himself in his image, which is man. God reveals himself in his image, which is man. God acts by his Word, God speaks by his Word, and God makes himself present by his Word, the second person, and the image of God, which is man. Now, because man is made in the image of God, man acts like God does, properly. When he does so properly, it's like God. It's the image of God. It's not like God in the satanic sense, but it's like God in a proper sense. And so man also has a word. There is a word of man. So we've talked about the word of God being powerful, meaningful, and self-expressive. Let's talk about the word of man, for it also is powerful, meaningful, and self-expressive. And then we're going to talk about The word, the corruption of the word of man, which is also powerful, meaningful, and self-expressive, the wrong way. Man's word is powerful because a man's actions reveals his character. What a man does shows what he is. And so his actions, which proceed from him, the things he does, as well as the things he says, the things he does reveal his character. Jesus says, by their fruits you shall know them. And God has said right at the beginning to man, I want you to take the garden and work with it and turn it into the city, right? Take dominion over the earth and cultivate the garden. That was man's kingly task in the area of acting out. And what proceeded from man came out from him just as God's word comes out from him and acts powerfully and displays his character. So man's actions come out from him and change things. They exercise dominion in the world and reveals his character. By their fruits you shall know them. Jesus said, the word of man is powerful. It's not omnipotent like God's, but it is powerful because it's in the image of God. Second of all, the word of man is meaningful, and we're used to that. We talk about words as speech. Here we're talking about speech. What proceeds from the lips? We've talked about what proceeds from the hands. From the hand of God comes the only begotten Son, who is the word of God, comes his power. Now we'll talk about what comes from the lips. Man's speech reveals his character. Again, man's actions reveal his character. His speech reveals his character. He gives out true or false doctrine. He gives out true or false uh, philosophy. And this is also man's kingly task, to name the animals, to name the wife, and to name the children, to exercise dominion. Not that children and women are animals, but uh, and we'll see that there's quite a bit of difference. But... That speech, that naming, describing, philosophizing function is the word of man which comes from his lips and tells about himself, it shows himself forth. His actions show about himself, his words show about himself. Both are the word of man that comes from him. And third, the word of man is self-expressive, self-expressive. And here again in two senses. God's word is self-expressive in two senses, in that God is involved in everything he says and does, and second of all, that God's son, which is humanity. Remember, Adam is the son of God, according to Luke chapter 3. Adam is the son of God, his image, not a not a biological son of God in some Mormon sense, but a created son. And man as the son of God uh, is the second way in which God self-expresses himself and makes his word present in the world. And similarly with men. Men are, present, men are in present personally involved in everything they say and do, and a man also has children which proceed from him and reveal him. Let's talk about the first. The word of man is self-expressive in that men are present in their words and deeds. Men are personally involved. Once a man does something, he tends to defend it. Once a man comes out and says something, he tends to defend it. Once a man is committed, it's hard for him to go back. There is a personal investment in what we do and what we say, for good or ill. And as the years go by, and people are more and more committed to what they've done in the past, and more and more committed to what they've said in the past, it's harder and harder for them to change. Because of the personal involvement in what they do in their word is so strong, and that's why older persons so seldom change. They have too much invested in their past actions and words. And so when we say that the word of man is powerful, it says that by his actions he reveals himself. It's meaningful, his speech which proceeds from him reveals himself, and it's self-expressive in that he he puts his, his whole person into what he does to a greater or lesser extent. But everybody makes some type of commitment, things they say, and people make commitments in things they do. And they're involved in them just as God is involved in what he says and does it's important to understand that God is not absent God doesn't control the world without getting involved in it or speak his word without getting involved no God always comes to be present in his world and present with his word when he speaks it to us and similarly people are present they are personally involved in what they say and do but the second aspect We've, is the children of a man are, in a sense, the word of a man. We've seen that man, the word that comes from man's hand is what he does. The word that comes from man's lips that proceeds from him is what he says. And then there's the word that comes from man's loins, which is his children. And the children of a man proceed from him, and they reveal him as well. We can look at our children and we see ourselves. Sometimes we'd rather not see what we see. But we see ourselves there, and other people see us there as well. This, by the way, is the tragedy of orphans, because orphans wind up being reared by people who do not sense their natures. Children are all different. And uh, my children are a lot like me, and I understand things they do. But if you tried to bring up my children, there are things they do that you wouldn't understand. And if I had to bring up your children, there are things that they do that I would not understand. And I'd probably think they were wrong, or I might lose a lot of sleep worrying about things that are just part of their personal character and natural traits. Because they are like you. They're not like me if I'm bringing them up and they're your kids. Children are part of what proceeds from a man. This is important, you see. Where we're going to go is that Cain named his son Enoch and he named his city Enoch. Because the city is the actions that come, the word of Cain that comes from him in the sense of, Power is the city, and the word of Cain that comes from him in the sense of children is his son. They are the things that flow from man and reveal himself. And the Bible always speaks this way. In fact, uh, everything is inherited down through children. We're used to this as Presbyterians. We can think of the second commandment, that the curse is passed down to the third and fourth generation of those that hate God, but that God's loving kindness is shown down to the thousandth generation of them that love him. But we can even turn to several passages in the Bible that show how this mindset was ingrained in the people. I'll just turn to two. You might look at Judges chapter 8, verse 21. Judges 8, verse 21. Now, here was a situation when Gideon asked his son to kill Ziba and Zalmunna, the enemies of God. It says in verse 20, So Gideon said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them but the youth did not draw his sword for he was afraid because he was still a youth then zeba and Zalmanah said rise up yourself and fall on us for as the man so is his strength that is the son is like the father and what the father is like is what the son will be like and if you want to see what the man is like look at the son because the son is the will be will turn out to be a visible expression, a word just like the Son of God is the only begotten of the Father and is the Father's word for all to see. So our son is our begotten and he is our word for all to see. You see the parallel I'm drawing? And one other passage we can look at is first Samuel 17 First Samuel 17 starting in verse 55. Now, this was after David kills Goliath. And what does Saul do? Saul's really impressed with David. Now, when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, and this was actually during the battle, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, By your life, O king, I do not know. And the king said, You inquire whose son the youth is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. See, Saul was interested in knowing uh, who lay behind this, whose word this was, so to speak, because David was manifesting a faith which was a shining forth, a word of his father. Now we can go back to Genesis 1 and see how this works, how this was just right there in the beginning, in that God told man to be fruitful and multiply. And so, what was originally set with Adam is to be spoken forth into the world. And man is to issue a word, just like God, by speaking, by doing, and by being present. And the only way man can be present in the entire world is by having children. So, Adam's children would go out and settle around Eden, and then their children would go out. And in that way, the word of man, in this personal sense, would spread throughout the world. Now, this is not the way the Bible speaks. Uh, This is the way the Bible speaks of the word of God, and we're drawing an analogy. Just as the word of God comes from him and comes out from him in the form of powerful actions, in the form of speech, and in the form of him going forth and being present, by the Holy Spirit, with his people, so the word of man comes forth in his actions, in his speech, and in his going forth and being present in things, and that's by way of children. And all of these things are there, you see, in Genesis chapter 1. God says, take dominion. That's the word of the hand, so to speak. God says, name the animals and come up with a philosophy, and that's the word of the lips. And God says, generate children and spread out and make yourself present everywhere in the earth and that's the word of man in the sense of his begetting others like himself now that's the three things that man needs to do and those three things are corrupted right away by the sin of man and that is why Cain goes out and builds this city and gives the city the same name as he he gives his son first of all the corrupt, the corrupt word of man is powerful. That is, it does things and it builds a city. And the city is named Enoch. Second of all, the word of man corrupted is meaningful and it erects a false philosophy that goes with that. That's not directly in view here, but we could call that the Enoch philosophy. Actually, it's more likely to be called Babelic or Babylonian philosophy in the Bible later on. And then third the word of man as he comes out from Cain is Cain's son and the son who is the word of Cain gives is given this name Enoch the same name as the city now this it's important to understand the bible is concerned with what proceeds out from a man because it explains and Ray has discussed this on in his series on Leviticus it explains why every time you have an issue of blood or of corruption or anything from the genitals or from the private parts this is part of that outflow of what is supposed to come from a man, and it's corrupted. Everything that the natural man builds with his hand is corrupted. Everything that comes from his loins is corrupted. And everything that he thinks is corrupted. And so left to itself without God's resurrecting power, uh, without cleansing, uh, man's works will be defiled, man's children will be defiled, and man's philosophy will be defiled so God works to undo all of these things. By baptism, our children are restored to the kingdom of God. By the Bible, uh, our thinking is restored to the kingdom of God. And our actions are given proper direction. Now, this is one way of looking at man's task. Man was supposed to do things. Things were to, to proceed from him. That was his kingly task and his word. God's word, powerful, meaningful, and self-expressive. Man's word, powerful, meaningful, and self-expressive for good or for ill. Now, we can also look a little bit differently at the same thing. And I just want to switch gears, so let's all switch gears and look at it slightly differently. And I'm going to say almost the same things, but I'm going to say them from a slightly different angle. We've been saying that man's kingly task consists of knowing and doing, and that's true But there's a third part of it, and that is fellowshipping. Now, I've stressed in the classes up to now that man, out of the faith he has in God, he knows things and he does things. And we've applied that to the liturgy, that we're supposed to know things and we're supposed to do things. We could have gone further and we could have said also a third component of that is doing it together or personal involvement, because that's also there. And so instead of talking about what proceeds from a person, the word that comes from God and the word that goes out from a man, let's talk a little bit more simply about what people do. They do three things in their kingly task. They learn and they know and they philosophize. That is, they name the animals and describe the world. Second of all, they do things. They dress the garden, they keep it, and they take dominion. They build in the world. And third. They fellowship with one another, and they get together in the world, somehow, in social and domestic life, in some type of community. These are also the three things that God told Adam to do, and they involve three forms of dominion. Now, these things always go together, but we break them apart to look at them and understand them. Let's talk about dominion by knowing, then dominion by working, and third, dominion by Uh, community or dominion by fellowshipping. These are things we do. What is dominion by knowing? Well, right away here in Genesis 2 we have it. First of all, the man is supposed to put names on all the animals, and those are descriptions, as we saw last time. It's a philosophizing process of giving a proper description. But that's not all. If we look at here in verse 23 of Genesis 2, the man said, Finally, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. So the man gives a name to his wife as well. In other words, there's some philosophizing and naming that goes on. And then later on in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And uh, she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Well, Cain means gotten and They gave the name to the child. And so this dominion by means of knowing is the beginning of man's philosophy and understanding of the world. He names and describes the animals, his wife, his children. The wife also helps in naming the children. You'll remember, for instance, that when Benjamin was born, his mother was real bitter, and she named him Benoni. And then a father came along after she was dead and said, well, that's not a very good name, son of sorrows. And I'll change it to Ben which means son of the right hand. But uh, it's not to say that this is exclusively a male uh, duty to put names on things, but that it's part of man's task as a whole. And so we have dominion by means of coming up with a true philosophy of the cosmos, the animals, and of society. These two things. Man needs a true philosophy and understanding of the world, the lower creation, so to speak, the cosmos. And of society, that is, human life, how we get along with one another. In this, of course, we have to set off against a false understanding of these things, which is in the line of Cain in the city of Enoch. And as Cain's city developed, it goes down until you get to the Tower of Babel, when the philosophy all falls apart. But men continue to try to develop false dominion by false knowledge, putting false names on things and arriving at a false knowledge. As a result, they don't keep their dominion very long, but at least they try. Now we'll look at we'll look at why they don't keep their dominion one of these weeks. We can touch on it tonight. But at the very beginning, man's kingly task involved understanding things, wisdom. We looked at that before, and here is part of what he's supposed to do. That's the meaningful part. Second of all, man's dominion, his kingly task involved working. He was to build a city society. He was to work with nature. He was to bring up his children, all of which involves work, especially after the fall of man. Now, this dominion by working by city building also shows up in the line of Cain, only there it's destructive. It doesn't work, but they're still doing that kingly task in a perverted form. And then there's dominion by fellowshipping man's social and domestic life. That is community life. You don't just build a city. You've also got to get along with people. And you've got to get along with your children and with your wife and also with your neighbors. Now in the line of Cain, this is torn by strife and hatred and it gets worse and worse over the years. Now we've set up what I think is a model that we can use, you see. Man is supposed to know, do, and fellowship in community. And these three things he was told to do right in the beginning of Genesis. After all, that's what all this naming of the animals was about. It was to teach Adam that he was alone. Because God said it's not good for him to be alone. And once Adam had looked at all the animals, he found out from reflecting on it and from understanding that there was not a helper suitable for him. So he went to sleep. Eve came out of his ribs. And there now is the establishment of community and fellowship. And so these three things were there in the beginning. And these three things are what are corrupted in the line of Cain. And that's what gives us our problem, because Cain got there first. He built the first city. And now if we want to come along and build a city, we have somehow or other to be able to use the research done by the Cainites in their city of Enoch when we build ours. But that becomes a problem. People are fearful of doing that. And secondly, uh, in the area of knowing, Cain and his people came up with the first philosophy. And now Christians come along and they have to somehow or other say, well, you've named the animals, but have you named them right? It's not 100% wrong because it works a little bit, what you've named, but it's not entirely right either. And we have to go through and be able to extricate from their philosophy some of the things that they say that are true while we separate out the chaff. And the third thing they've done is they've set up a society. We have to be able somehow As we as Christians come along later in the world and we're faced with these societies that already exist, this is particularly true on the mission field, where you already have a social structure, you can't just tear it all up because then everything falls apart. The gospel can't instantly replace it. So there has to be a way of going into that Enoch society and working with it, separating out what is bad, allowing certain things that are inadequate to die off as they're slowly replaced, and gradually replace it with a Christian society. You see the dynamic. The dynamic of the Enoch factor is that Enoch got there first, and uh, Cain got there first, and he set set it up Enoch-wise. Man, as the image of God, reflects the life of God in three fundamental ways, by begetting, by proceeding out, and by naming. He has children that he begets, he creates environments, and he creates philosophies. In the Bible, these are seed, city, and word. Always in the Bible is a concern with the seed. (coughs) That's with the children, which come from a man and is an extension of his person. There is a concern with the city or with the land, which is the environment. And there's a concern with the philosophy, with the word, or with the ideas. God said to do these things, and Cain went and did them first. As a result, the seed is corrupt in the Bible, the land is corrupt in the Bible, and the Word is corrupt in the Bible. These need redemption by blood. The first culture built is the sinful one. And the problem comes, as we've said, in that now how do we respond? I want to close tonight by talking about three Christian responses, and we'll talk about these a little bit more later on. Uh, next time. But the first Christian response that we see historically to the Enoch factor, that they got there first and they've got this whole civilization consisting of an organization of material society and a city, an organization of society, and also a philosophy. The first Christian response is a response of negation. A response of negation. They say the cultural mandate has been canceled. Christians don't engage in it. Christians ought not to try to change society. We just ought to just try to escape from it. Christians ought not to try to build a city. Christians should try to escape from it. And basically, Christians ought not to uh, consider their children as part of God's kingdom, but as aliens and strangers. This whole response of negation tends to go along with Baptist theology. The Baptists have never been very good at building Christian societies. In fact, they've never done so. They've always been there, we might say, as parasites on Episcopal or Presbyterian societies. They don't build them themselves. They, make, they come up with good preachers, but they've never developed much in the way of societies. They don't engage in city building at all. And secondly, they don't uh, tend to engage in philosophizing. There aren't any Baptist systematic theologians. You don't think of any. Systematic theologians are all... Presbyterians or Episcopalians. They're people who are concerned with culture and society. Baptists preach. They get people saved. We don't deny that. But they don't tend to engage in countering Enoch. And thirdly, of course, they're not really very concerned. They don't uh, try to redeem properly, at least, their children. They don't regard their children as coming from themselves in the sense that the children are also part of the gospel community Rather, the children are alien to the gospel community, and as a result, they don't wind up with any type of society. Baptist churches don't tend to be societies. They tend to be collections of individuals. And then you've got people who aren't yet saved and haven't yet walked the aisle. But a collection of individuals is not the same thing as a structured society. So the three things that man was told to do in the beginning, to work up a structured society out of his children, to build a city, to come up with a philosophy, those three things the Baptists by and large, have tended to say, to a greater or lesser degree, those three things don't count anymore. The cultural mandate is gone. Cain got there first. There's nothing we can do about it. This world is going to be destroyed. We're going to go to heaven. When we get to heaven, God's already done it for us, so we never do have to do it, so we don't have to worry about it. Well, if you'd like to know the reply to that, the reply is in Genesis chapter 9. Verses 1 and 2, and that is that after the flood, God came right back and told Noah to do all the same things he told Adam to do. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the earth and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. So the original task, forming a community by spreading out uh, the race of exercising dominion by building a city and by coming up with a proper philosophy of life, they're all there, repeated. So that's the response of negation. That's not our response. It's a very common one historically of dropout groups or other worldly groups, but we can't take it. The second response that we find is the response of reaction. It's not quite as philosophically aware as the response of negation. We'll call it the response of reaction. Avoid things that non-Christians do, especially where they're strong. Okay? If the non-Christians are really strong in the movies, then you don't go to the movies at all. Um, traditionally, non-Christians have been uh, Christians have felt that it was wrong to read fictional literature because most of it was written by non-Christians, and so fictional literature is wrong. Christians shouldn't write fiction, they shouldn't read it, shouldn't have anything to do with it. React against it. When the non-Christians have been strong in the area of music, you get a reaction that says Christians ought not to pay any attention to music. Hold right, Swingley, the reformer, uh, who was um, close to Calvin, Swingley felt that uh, all the music was pagan in his day, and so there should be no music in the church at all. The service should be entirely spoken from start to finish, because it was dangerous. Well, and the problem here is, it's understandable, see, Jabel and Jubal got there first, and they developed music first, and they developed literature first. And so people tend to react against it. But what did God do? Well, God, when Israel was set up, ordered them to set up an elaborate system of music in the temple. And they did so. And they had to learn that somewhere and they didn't know it themselves to start with. And God told them to set up an elaborate agricultural system. And the Jews had been slaves in Egypt. You know what they did in Egypt? They made bricks. They didn't know anything about agriculture. They had to learn it somewhere. They had to learn it from Jabel and Jubal and Tubal-Cain. When Solomon built the temple... Who did he hire? pagan named Hiram. Hiram of Tyre. Hiram came in and showed him how to do it. Now the question is, could we hire a man to play the organ in our church who was a pagan? Sure. We could do that. doesn't mean we aren't careful, but there is plenty of biblical foundation for not taking the response of reaction. The Bible says we should confidently look at what the non-Christians are doing and without fear of anything without fear that we're going to be corrupted if we do it in the strength of the Lord, we can use what they have learned. The third response, and I'll just touch on this because we want to move on next time, is the response of separation. The response of separation says, look, let's don't pay any attention to what the pagans do. We need to have the cultural mandate, but we're going to reinvent the wheel. We don't need to learn anything from Jabel about agriculture. We're just going to go and start from scratch ourselves and have our own unique Christian culture over here entirely separate from the pagan culture. We're not going to learn from Jubal about music. We're not going to go to Juilliard because there are a bunch of pagans there and because there are homosexuals there and we don't want to study with homosexuals. I don't want to learn the organ and have to sit on an organ bench next to a queer and so I'm just not going to learn the organ. I'll just sit at home and learn it myself and not learn anything from the queers who teach organ at X Music Academy. I'm not saying that they are queers at Juilliard but I am saying that there's an awful lot of homosexuals playing organs in this country. And uh, if you want to learn the organ, chances are you can learn it from a homosexual. Okay? Since I can't stomach that, or because it's not just I can't stomach it, but it is immoral, I can't do it, we'll reinvent the wheel and we won't learn from them. Well, the problem with that is the same problem that we just looked at. That's not the way the Bible sets it out. The Jews went and learned from the pagans, and then they took what was true and separated what was false. And so, next time, we will reflect more seriously on what we can do and some of the things we do need to worry about as we deal with our Enoch culture and as we look into it and try to separate out the wheat from the chaff and develop our own Christian culture. Because we got there a second and we have to try harder. Let's stand and close in closing prayer.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.